0: We're going to read from Acts 17 and uh, taking up the reading from verse 16. Paul in Athens, following through this journey. And uh, Paul has some spare time in his hands. He's done the sightseeing, I guess, and now he makes a a much uh, deeper observation. While Paul was waiting for them, that's his colleagues, what we'd call this apostolic team of of leaders, while he's waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he should make every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this. So that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Well, just uh, to be sure we can move into the introduction quickly. The heading is to an unknown God. And uh, this is now a rather different situation to where we have been before in um, Philippi, Paul's visit to Thessalonica, and Berea. This is what's called the, the Ignatian Way, which, following the Roman trade routes, where you have these cities of commerce and influence, and as a result of what's called the diaspora, the Jewish dispersion, often for either for commercial reasons or persecution, where the Jewish people went, they established a synagogue. It was a religious and sort of social and cultural place where fellow Jews met and talked and discussed and so on. And Paul always made a beeline there because they were people who had the the scriptures, the Old Testament as we understand it. But now it's Athens and that's different. Athens is the home of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the greatest People even say today, most influential of all philosophers of all time. And the city is a, a showcase, of par excellence of intellectual achievement. And yet, with that, taking nothing from it, Paul senses that there are people there who have a very deep spiritual hunger. We borrowed the acronym last time we met from um, the hospice movement, which they call TEAM, which means Together Each Achieve More. Uh, that's not only true of the hospice movement, remarkable though that is, but of churches, of organizations, secular and religious Together, each achieve more. And here is Paul waiting till his uh, colleagues, friends join him. And during this time, he makes these observations. So we're following this missionary enterprise, and we've noticed this clear strategy. These strategic cities, these centers of excellence, of commerce, of business, and learning, and religion. And because the Jews were dispersed, Paul would engage with them. One of the interesting things that I have noticed when visiting other countries is how how patriotic the English are. The English, it seems to me, are patriotic more abroad than they are here. I mean, you ask people about St. George's Day, it comes and goes, and they don't even know it's there. Whereas abroad the St. George's flags and their culture and uh, this special day is focused. And I think Paul would have had an affinity culturally with uh, his fellow Jews. But he wanted more. It's not enough to be a patriotic Jew, to have certain things in common, in birth, background and tradition. He then wanted to lead them further and talk about the Messiah. So Paul started in the synagogue and in most of these cities of the Roman Empire. Here is an interesting thing. Gentiles were attracted to these synagogues. There were strict uh, criteria for becoming a member of the synagogue. And yet they were Gentiles. Just so that you know, it's not just simply uh, a little Jewish enclave. Turn to Acts chapter 8, for example. And verse 26, just to illustrate this. So we see how we observe how the gospel made inroads ultimately to Europe. Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. This is as a result of the the day of Pentecost. There were people from all over the the world. You know that list that is given in Acts chapter 2, one of whom was an Ethiopian. Tonight, here as we speak, Doug Blackstone is flying back to Ethiopia. And one of the things I was so astonished and humbled about when I went, uh, Hannah and I went to Ethiopia some years ago, just to see how strong the Orthodox Church is and what a legacy uh, there is with um, the Ethiopian and bringing it back to his people. But I'm only illustrating how people became what's called um, um, half-Jew, half-Gentile. They embraced um, the Jewish faith. They were sort of proselytes in that sense, that they had seen that there was something here that was true, one of whom is this very important man from Ethiopia. And in verse 26... Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Kandesi, queen of Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, precisely. He'd embraced Judaism, And this was a holy day, a high day, and he made, perhaps, his pilgrimage. Just like, as we understand, people say, I want to go to Mecca. If you talk to a Muslim, as as there are in this village, once in their life, the one thing they want to do is make a pilgrimage to their most sacred place. Well, in a way, that's similar, but different. So, in verse 28, and on his way home, he was sitting in, in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Might have been the set reading of the day. The Spirit told Philip, go to the chariot, stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading, surprise, surprise, from Isaiah 53. And he asks him a question. In verse 30, do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explain it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading the passage of scripture. He was he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Now, Philip did not hesitate to have some arid discussion about the past and so on, and holy books. Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Do you see my point? He, he had an informed view of the Old Testament as many of these people did and Paul's arrival, just like Philip was saying, you know all those things, you know that, that the promised Messiah, Jesus is the one and as a result of that the church in Embryo in Thessalonica, in Philippi in Berea and even in Athens begins to grow and flourish I think that's very important so that we see our roots where the church continues to grow uh, in, in our day. So, the Old Testament is a preparation for the gospel. Many people, like the eunuch, had a true faith. A true godly faith. But, they had not yet embraced Jesus as the Messiah. So coming back to Acts 17, 16 to 23, which uh, which is our reading, it is particularly interesting. In verse 16, the synagogue and then the marketplace. It's very important for us to realize that we're in church. We don't have the monopoly on this gospel. So here it is in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue. You see that? With the Jews and God-fearing Greeks. So already you had this idea of people being attracted to the promise of a Messiah. Athens is a city of great contrast. In this sense, the the Epicureans believed in the Greek gods. They used to say in Athens there were more gods than people. Gods for everything. Gods for good luck, for bad luck. For marriage, for children. For living, for dying. For wealth, for poverty. You name it, there's a God for everything. In fact, the historians say there were more gods than people occupying this city in Athens. Epicureans believed in the Greek gods. The Stoics, however, were what's called uh, pantheists. They believed in uh, an inner soul, of the soul of the world, that God is in everything. He's in everything, everywhere, all the time. God in everything, everything in God. And so, verse 18 and 20, you see the contrast that some are tolerant and others are intolerant. Some are cynical, some are spiritual, some are interested, some are indifferent. What will this babbler say? Some have made their mind up and they say, don't confuse me with the truth. That's, in a way, that's not dissimilar at any time, in any place. So that's the setting. And Paul now is invited to the Areopagus. What is that? It's a bit like what used to have um, uh, Speaker's Corner uh, in, in, in London. Uh, Hyde Park was, and still today, if you were to go there, you will find people will stand up and propagate about everything under the sun. And some people listen and some people will heckle and so on. Perhaps less of it now as there used to be. And some of us can remember times years ago when you used to have open-air meetings. And uh, that's when I first w- learned to speak in the open-air, where people would heckle back to you and you had to defend yourself. Couldn't hide behind a pulpit or inside a church. Well, that was, that's the start of the Areopagus. If you've got something to say, you present your case and we listen and try not to interfere. So that's the context. So this, uh, the Areopagus, is also called Mars Hill. Uh, it's from the Roman god of war. It's the point. Places and so on had uh, religious uh, or idolatrous connotations. So it was an intimidating place. Now here's the interesting thing. Paul doesn't speak about culture You sometimes wonder sometimes if people, whether it's missionaries abroad or ourselves, they ever get beyond culture. He doesn't speak about that. Though they were mad about it. He doesn't speak about philosophy. So instead of culture, he presents the Christ. Instead of philosophy, a personal faith. Not opinion, subjectively. A faith, objectively. Objectively. So that brings us to two things that I want us to comment about that may be helpful in terms of how we pray and support missionaries and think about the growth of the gospel um, in our present world. Two perhaps simple lessons that we can have, whether it's within our own families or our colleagues at work or school or whatever. Number one, start where people are. Start where people are. See, in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Everybody is religious. Everybody. Even the person in his or her folly says, thank God I'm an atheist. Everybody is religious. Everybody. We... Value what we do and we do what we value. And part of our valuing is our worship. Things, people, money, kudos, sport, you name it. What is our ultimate concern? So it's not too difficult, actually, to connect with anybody in our increasingly secular world that everybody is religious. And Paul does this. And I guess this is an important lesson for us. If we are to communicate our faith personally, not win arguments, we need to start where people are. Now, interestingly, he didn't start with creation or with the Old Testament. He opens up a subject closer home that touches everybody. Religion. I know it's the golden rules, isn't it? Two things you shouldn't talk about. Politics and religion. Why not? Why not talk about faith? The city is full of idols whom they valued. And so in verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but... You wonder if they did any work, don't you? Nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Start where people are, whether that is sport, work, the garden, but don't stay there. Don't stay there. We all know the danger of that, I hope. So what do we need to do? We need to, we need to listen to what people are saying. We need to look. So Paul did. He looked and he observed. And interestingly, he saw this inscription to an unknown God. Something, somewhere. Somewhere. What he's really saying here is this, that God shaped us like this. He made us like this. I guess what he is appealing to here is this innate sense of our essential DNA. That we are worshipping people. It's in us. Even in our increasingly secular society. Sometimes it's... Let me give you an, an example. Opposite us is the old um, Methodist chapel that's turned into a, into a house. And the couple have renovated quite extensively and now they are selling and they want to move away. And uh, in the Tame Gazette, it had uh, a prayer of a house, it said. And then the rest was excellent near the bowling green and the tennis courts, good pubs, uh, access to the motorway and so on and so forth. Not even a thought That there would be good churches in the village. Could you ever imagine people doing that? People don't think in those terms at all. And yet I say to you, even in our society, here we are, that people are innately religious. If we can get beyond the the superficial... Start where people are, but don't stay there. And secondly, use the obvious to introduce the less obvious. Think of the way that Jesus took parables. Now, he was the master of that. And you can think of examples again and again where he didn't say the kingdom of heaven is. The kingdom of heaven is like. This is what it's like. So in verses 23 to 24, here it is. As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, there it is, to an unknown God. Now, is this an arrogant statement? Now, what you worship as something unknown, something speculative, I specifically am going to tell you. Do you remember we looked at this last week as, and again it makes an excellent cross reference and it won't come up on the PowerPoint. In, in John chapter 4, Jesus did this. Uh, do you remember he met the, the woman of Samaria? And um, in John chapter 4 verse 21, he was able to engage with her on the issue of religion. She was a Samaritan, sort of half-Jew. And um, they are talking. Our fathers worshipped on that mountain and so on and so on. Then in verse 21, Jesus declared, this is him speaking to the Samaritan woman. Woman, a time is coming when you will worship neither on this mountain nor on Jerusalem. Now listen to this. Is this an arrogant statement? You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship What we do know for salvation comes from the Jews. And then Jesus gives to this woman with all of her moral failure of the past. Yet the time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Perhaps the most profound statement on worship you could have in the whole Bible not on that mountain not on this mountain not in that way or this way but in spirit and in truth whatever that means at any given time we 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 use the obvious to introduce the less obvious that's not being clever and i hope it isn't being arrogant i hope it is being wise and humble in our confidence that Jesus is uniquely the Messiah. We move from the, fam- from, the um, from the unfamiliar, from the familiar to the unfamiliar, to the known, to the unknown to the known, to the living God. And so in verse twenty three, this inscription to the unknown God now. What you worship as something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. Then the God who made the world. And everything in it. And then the Lord Jesus. And death and resurrection. And future judgment. To them was God was an unknown. But Paul's point is this, and it's quite shattering. He is knowable. God is knowable. And of course, as you will see uh, later on at the end of this reading, that he is not far from each of you. And he drives home his message. Let me close by just trying to convey In these verses, the way that Paul does this, with these four simple facts. First, now he talks about being the creator. He starts where they are, but he wants to move them on. Being the creator, God cannot be contained. You have that in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Beautiful they are. Like the great cathedrals in our land. That's not where God lives. Yet I'm sure there are people today who genuinely and sincerely think like that. They go into a great cathedral. Yes, there is an awesome sense of presence there. Like as if this is where God lives. It's not like that. And secondly... Being the originator, he has no needs. He has no needs. Verse 25. He is not served by human hands as if if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. It's not amazing that he does that. And thirdly, so he says... God is the creator. God is the originator. And thirdly, being intelligent, he has a definite plan. So in verses 26 and 27, here it is. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined times set for them and the exact places where they should live. And finally, lastly, being the sustainer. He is not dependent on his creation. He is not. So in verse 28, for in him we live, move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. He is not dependent on us but for sure we are dependent on him. Where can you go for grace? Where can you go for forgiveness? Where can you go for mercy but to this God who sent his son to be our savior? And whether it's Corinth or Philippi or Thessalonica or Athens or Europe or Great Britain or Long Crendon. Jesus, He is the center. And it is true that in Him we live and move and have our being. And one day when this brief Life is finished. We will know as now we cannot know. And meanwhile, we come to him for grace, for mercy, for forgiveness, for love.